welcome everybody. Welcome to the Matter of the Heart, where we bring you heartfelt, educational, and positive stories, all to elevate your spirit. I am Carol, your host, and always thank you so much for taking your time out to listen to the Matter of the Heart. The topic of the show is wisdom of indigenous cultures, and there's so, so very much, much so much to learn. And the guest is Dr. Bonnie McLean. She was awarded the top international doctor of oriental medicine and acupuncture in 2019. She integrates in a private practice. So much cupping, hypnosis, guided imagery, shamanic and energy healing, reflexology. And she's the author of, what's the exact title, Bonnie? Integrative Medicine, the Return of the Soul to Healthcare. I thought I was going to say the whole thing, but I didn't want to leave a word out. And it's a great book. It's a great, Thank you. great, great, great book. So we welcome you to the show, Bonnie. Thank you, Carol. It's so wonderful to be able to talk with you again and see you again. Thanks, Bonnie. I'm fascinated with indigenous cultures because I think um, they're the root of um, healing. And, um, and so we're gonna, we are going to concentrate on a few listeners. The Aborigines, um, Ecuadorians, and healers from Bali, which is a very, very unique country, I think, in the world. So what can we learn about the Aborigines, Bob? Wow. A lot, Carol. I spent two and a half years living in Australia. And while I was there, I, of course, everywhere I traveled during that time, I would find indigenous teachers and healers. And so I found uh, an Aboriginal lady named Lorraine Moffey Williams, who was a teacher and a healer, a wonderful, just wonderful woman. She was willing to take the time to teach me about their culture, which they weren't used to that many white people <laughs> being uh, interested in the Aboriginal culture. And so it, I, it took her a little while to trust me, I think, and to realize that I was very sincere and wanting to know some of their spirituality and their healing practices. And we ended up spending, it was a year to a year and a half, uh, you know, working together. And she, she taught me whatever she was allowed to teach me. They have different levels of spirituality that they go through different initiations throughout their lifetimes as to what level of knowledge they get. So the level of knowledge I got was the first one, of course, the one that they start using when they teach their children. But when the, when the children, they start very, very young. When they're three years old, they stand them in front of a mirror and they have them say, I love myself and look at themselves in, the, in their eyes and, and say, and because I love myself, I love you and I love everybody. Oh, beautiful. Isn't that beautiful? And, you know, they, they 
grow up, you know, with this sense of, of you know, of self, you know, of who they are as a, as a spiritual being and a loving human being. So Lorraine, she taught me, you know, about like their initiations and the reasons that, uh, you know, they have the tattoos like the uh, New Zealand, the Maoris have as well. They all are connected to um, an initiation that they've had and they will show what level of knowledge they have. They also, believe it or not, they work with crystals, which I never would have thought of. And the, the men actually, they wanna open their third eye and they will have a crystal embedded in their third eye to help open it. Wow. Isn't that interesting? Wow. Just a very, very deep culture. Uh, they, Lorraine had a group of spiritual helpers that she called the band. And they were the ones who would communicate with her. And according to her, at night is, is when we get spoken to from the other side. Yeah. We get spoken to from our own, uh, you know, our own spiritual helpers, uh, but also from our ancestors. So for, I, think it, I think it was from seven until nine at night because they would go to bed with the sun, right? So they would, they'd already be down and they would get up early. Um, but between seven and nine, I think she said, if one of those groups would come, I think it was our personal uh, healers. And then, and you know, our ancestors and our personal spiritual uh, yeah. guardians and healers and helpers. And then early in the morning, I think it, I think it was, three to six or something, um, the ancestors would come and they believed that they were came from the Pleiades. And so the ancestors from the Pleiades would also come and both sets would educate the person, you know, during their sleep and give them information. Mm, wow. Fascinating. So, what yeah. is tattoos? You mentioned tattoos. Uh, what, what's, what, what symbols were the tattoos? Any type of you know. I, you know, I honestly don't remember. This was back in the 1990s. I just remember that they had them. They didn't, they weren't as plentiful as, you know, the ones that you see in the Maoris in New Zealand, right. but they were there for the same, for the same reasons. But they didn't have them all over their face, you know, like the Maoris. Sometimes you see right. Maoris, uh, like more on their arms and their chest and their backs. And I, I never was privy to, you know, what initiation they had, you know, as to why they had tattoos put on, you know, what they meant. I mean, that was not information that I was allowed to have, I suppose. Uh, what, what impressed me about Lorraine was her heart. And that was, that's what's always impressed me about the indigenous people. All the teachers and healers I've had from any of the indigenous cultures always came from the heart and speaking from the heart and, and acting from the heart helped open my own heart. And that, that, that probably healed me more than, you know, than anything. Um, it was also interesting. 
and I was telling you this earlier about their concept of time, they just, they live partly in the physical world and partly in the spirit world. And so if you look in their eyes, they have like this far away look in their eyes where you know they're not all, you know, in this world and you can, different people interpret it in different ways. Uh, but what it is, is that there's, there's still, they're in, um, you know, part, they have a foot in this other world. And because of that too, they don't live in linear time. So they don't really live in linear time or space. They operate in it, but they also live in the energy world that way. So their sense of time is different and it's been hard for the Australians to understand that. So they, they don't understand that if somebody has a job and they're supposed to be there at 9 a.m. till five, they may show up at 10 or 11, but then they'll stay until seven. They get the work done. To them, it's important that they get the work done, not what time right. you know, they, that they do it. And so it, there's a misconnection, you know, miscommunication with them. And that's probably why you don't see a lot of them in the regular job market, you know, in Australia. They also, as far as space goes, they, they work with ley lines, you know, the energy lines on the planet. They're kind of like the planet's energy meridians, like the human body has acupuncture meridians. Well, and like we have chakras, they believe that the planet has these energy lines and also the power spots, which are like our, our chakras. So it's kind of, you know, as above, so below you know, that we have microcosms of the macrocosm. So they actually travel these ley lines. And so that's how they bilocate. So they can go, go from one place, not all of them can, but if they're deeply trained, you know, like the, I don't even, I don't, they don't call them shamans, but the medicine people, um, they, they can bilocate. So they can go from one place to miles away in like a second, a few seconds. Wow. And so I think that that kind of thing, you know, freaks some people out too. And I think that there are a mystery, you know, to a lot of the culture there. Wow. Well, because their sense of time is so different. Well, it is. And plus they're also telepathic. I was telling you about when Lorraine visited and her family right brought her and she communicated with them telepathically as to where they could come pick her up and take her home because they had dropped her off. It's amazing. So uh, let's, let's, let's go to another part of the word, Bali. Okay. <laughs> so I went to Bali twice. Each time I stayed a month, I fell in love with Bali. I absolutely, I think if I'd been allowed to live there, I would have, probably still been there it is uh, it's like heaven on earth and they believe that it is they believe that that is heaven hmm. they have these sacred mountains there's a mountain called mount ogun that's their primary sacred mountain they have altars all throughout the whole island they hmm. they live their spirituality hmm. so they'll have little they'll have altars They'll have um, uh, 
what do I want to say, not churches, but temples. They have temples, big temples, you know, for the whole island, like one on Mount Avon. And they have one in a bat cave and just, you know, different sacred parts of Bali. Then each uh, town has its own temple, at least one. They may have several, you know, one for the clocks and one for healing purposes and one for divination. And, and then um, each home has an altar and that's the altar to the ancestors. So they actually... Uh, you know, dedicate those altars to the ancestors. And that's how they communicate with the ancestors is their own altars. And then they're all little mini altars all throughout each town because they stop three times a day to say their prayers. And so if they're not at home, they have an altar to go to. So they'll talk to the spirits and they'll, um, you know, to their gods and goddesses. They're Balinese Hindus, so they they do um, believe the same, you know, as the Hindus with the different aspects of God and goddess, Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, and they call them Saraswati, Devi, Sri, Devi, Devi Durga, which are the same gods and goddesses in India. They just have, you know, their names are a little bit different. Um, so they, hi, sweetheart, kitty cat's joining the conversation. So uh, <laughs> they love they love when I get online. They love the energy. So um, they will they will say prayers. They will give offerings and ask for certain things, you know, from from the gods and goddesses, and then and they give thanks. They always, you know, they're always living in a place of gratitude. They are so humble and so full of gratitude and, and giving. Wow. And I think it's, you know, I mean, they're just such gentle, gentle souls and they love to be of service. And so when I went the first time, I wanted to go on a spiritual pilgrimage and because I knew they had all these temples and I wanted to learn about their culture and their religion and everything. So uh, I, I didn't know where to find a guide to take me there. And I, I asked, you know, there were several that approached, you know, because I was a tourist, you know, wanting me to, wanted to take me to learn to shop because that's mostly what tourists wanted to do. And I said, well, can you take me to the temples? Can you take me, you know, on a spiritual pilgrimage? And they go, no, we don't do that. You know, so I was staying in this motel and this young man showed up named Rayan Tantra on his little motorbike. They all ride a little, um, they're not motorcycles, but they're scooters, you know. And he showed up and we chit-chatted probably for an hour. And then he just in passing, you know, I said, well, what do you do for a living? And he said, oh, I take people on spiritual pilgrimages. And I said, really? Well, that's why I came. That's what I want. So I spent that whole next month. I, I, I was going to stay a week. I stayed a month. And I stayed. And he took me on the back of his little motor scooter just about every day and took me to a different temple. And I got to go to their ceremonies. And they were so, you know, nobody blinked an eye, you know, when I showed up. He would take me to his house. The sisters would dress me in the proper sarong, you know, proper clothes to go to these things. And we'd go on this motor scooter and we'd go to these different ceremonies and 
I mean, it was just so uh, heart opening. And, you know, I think that they're telepathic, too, because somehow he knew what I was looking for and he wanted to give service and he showed up. Right, right. So they and they their ceremonies were very interesting in that they're, they're not afraid of the shadow aspect of life. They embrace it. They don't. But that doesn't mean that they embrace evil. To them, the shadow is our own unowned parts. And so they acknowledge the shadow. So the way they do it, like they when they have their ceremonies, you can go to a temple and it looks bare. So when they take tourists to temples, it's like, oh, well, you know, here's a temple. You take some pictures and that's it. When they get ready to have a ceremony, they bring it to life. They dress it up with flowers and drapes and fruit and, you know, say their prayers and bring it to life. And then they do their ceremony. So one of the ceremonies I went to, they uh, had this mat with treats for the, um, for the demons. <laughs> and so they put all these treats out there. I think it was like they had onions and just some crazy stuff. And then they started beating the ground with the sticks and calling the demons and they'd come up and get your goodies. We have them for you, come get them. And then somehow the village, everybody there at the ceremony knew at the same time, like a bird, a flock of birds flies at the same time, you know, or a school of fish, they all move all at the same time. All of a sudden the whole group grabbed this mat and ran out the gate with it and put it out on the road, put it on a crossroads that's supposed to be a connection between the upper world and the lower world. And they left it there for the demons to have their goodies and go away. And so then they cleansed their own space so that they could invite the gods into, you know, a clean, pure space and right. so the demons were happy and they were away right and you know they closed the gates and everything you know and then uh during that time well they would also cleanse everybody they would use water and little flowers and branches and you know holy water and um you know cleanse everybody and then they would say their prayers and they had these certain hand positions you know talking to the the main god they called it the monadas and your hands would go away you know to the top and uh you know straight up and then you bring them down a little bit and it'd be to you know the aspects of god so they really are they're a monotheistic society we don't know that about hinduism we think that they're you know multi-gods and goddesses but they're aspects of the one god right. so they you know, so they would say, you know, prayers to them and then, you know, prayers to their own helpers, you know, their own angels and guides and everything. And then prayers for everybody else, you know, for their loved ones. And so they would all um, do that. And then there'd be one person and it was always a different person that would start speak, start uh, channeling information from the other side. And it wasn't always the one priest. It was a different person in the group. And they never knew who it was going to be. It was whoever the gods and goddesses chose for that day. And they would speak and answer questions and, you know, give whatever information the community needed to hear. 
and then they would go back out of a trance and then they would you know close the ceremony wow amazing beautiful um i'm just curious uh, their diet do they eat meat Yes, actually, they do eat meat, but not a lot because there's not a lot there. You know, they grow so much of their own. They grow their food, basically, except for the rice. Well, they actually even grow the rice. They have rice fields there. Uh, they have some chickens, but I didn't actually I did not see I did not see any cows. So they grow their own food. For the most part, I'm sure that they must bring something other things in. Right. I don't know. But it's very basic, and it, it, I mean, it was healthy. It was good. And you mentioned scooters. Are there cars? There are cars, but there are more scooters than cars. <laughs> more people ride the, the scooters. Right. And is there a lot of walking? Yes, there's quite a bit of walking. Um, not so much between the cities, you know, the towns. Right. But um, within, within the town, there's a lot of walking. Okay, right. You know, I don't even know what kind of government it has. Well, they're in they're in Indonesia, so yeah. um, you know they have to operate under the laws of Indonesia. Right. But they're I'm... the only Hindu island. Everything else, I think, is Muslim or indigenous. Okay. Some of the islands, I think, still have some of the, you know, the earlier, uh, you know, inhabitants there. Right. Most of it's Muslim, but they, you know, apparently they leave the Balinese alone, you know, let them have their own way of life. Amazing. Well, that's, that's a whole show in itself. Uh, uh, one quick, quick uh, before we get to the other, mm -hmm. do they wear a lot of orange? No, not particularly. A different culture. No. Okay. I'm thinking. Oh, I'm trying to think of who wears <laughs> I think that's India, isn't it? And, yeah, um, India. and some of the some of the shamans down, uh, not just the shamans, but the people in the uh, jungles down in South America wear those orange um, wraparound. Yeah, whatever they are. Okay, fascinating. Okay, let's go to Ecuador. Okay. <laughs> oh wow! I I went to Ecuador four times. I fell in love with Ecuador and the Ecuadorian people. Uh, you can tell I fell in love with just about you know everybody, but um, you're easy to please. No, 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 I don't think so. I think I was just lucky. I went to the right places. <laughs> Ecuadorians are so they're so open-hearted. And the first time I went, I went with a group. There was a group at the time called Dream Change Coalition. A man named John Perkins founded it, and he and so different. Uh, guides would take groups down there to live with the, um, you know, the people that lived in the Andes and the Amazon. So we went to both places. So I went with a group uh, that was a, Mary was the name of the group leader and she was a psychologist, which was actually very, very helpful, I thought. Um, so we went, we, we uh, worked with the shamans up in the Andes and we went to the sacred mountains because they have sacred mountains as well. And we got initiated in uh, this cave in Imbabura, the mountain it called Imbabura, and got an, 
got initiated into, you know, the shamanic world uh, through, there were, it was a father and two sons. And uh, I mean, it was just, uh, you know, very life-changing experience. And then we went down into the jungle and into the rainforest and we stayed uh, in a place called Miasol, which means salt. It, it, it had formed because there, they were able to get salt around there. Right. Um, the oil companies are down there. And so they were kind of making inroads, which was caused me a lot of grief. And these people refused to be grief stricken about anything. They always, they believed that uh, you visualize what you want to happen. Therefore you visualize only the good you know, how you want the future to be. So they would not, you know, even talk to me about any of <laughs> my being upset about the oil companies. Right, right. So, so we had a ceremony in the jungle and that was when a lot of that my grief came out and um, I was just kind of crying a lot into the bushes <laughs> and, um, and Mary finally, you know, she listened to me for a while and she finally just said, now, Bonnie, see if you can turn your grief into creativity. And something shifted with, within me. I was kind of in an altered state and something just dramatically shifted, you know, in my brain, in my mind. And that I've been, you know, ever since then, when I start going into a place of grief, of you know, seeing the world you know, going through all the problems that we're going through here. And um, I write a book, <laughs> you know, like, I mean, I, it just automatically turns into That's great. some kind of creative. So I'll either do my healing work or writing, you know, one or the other. And so that, that was a very dramatic shift for me. And I, it was so profound. I went back three, you know, three more times. The next time I went back down with Mary, who, had a personal relationship with some of the people down there and was the godmother of some of the new babies and stuff like that. So I went down and had a, um, you know, a, another just beautiful experience. And I got to know the uh, herbalist of that particular community. And so he invited me to come back down a third time to study the plants with him. So I went down and stayed at his house. He had this hut with his family and uh, they had a little little hut off to the side, which was for the guests. <laughs> so it had this one wooden platform in there to keep me off the ground and, <laughs> and a window, <laughs> that was it. But you didn't want to sleep on the ground because of snakes and <laughs> lizards and all that stuff, right? So they were all used to sleeping up on these wooden platforms. They'd grown up with it. And so it wasn't hard to them. I had a hard time with that, you know, with the <laughs> sleeping at night because of the hard surface. But it was still just so worth it. It was just just amazing. And, uh, and ended up, you know, going down one more time. I went down to do missionary work, medical missionary work. That was a, um, a doctor from... Canada and his wife, who was a um, medical person, and then another friend that was a physician's assistant, a, a physician's assistant, 
and we all, and I went down as the acupuncturist. <laughs> so we went up and down the rivers on a canoe to the different villages to see, because they didn't have doctors down there. They didn't really have medical care. Oh, wow. It's all, you know, if, if you were lucky enough to have an herbalist or, you know, somebody that knew the plants there, you know, you were okay, but a lot of them didn't. So we went from village to village and did like even minor surgeries. They would put us in this little schoolhouse and we'd pull a table up and that would be what we would work, you know, on the patient on, you know, just stretch them out on the table and, you know, suture up things or uh, give them, you know, medicines. A lot of them uh, actually had diabetes because of the Western foods that people had brought down to them. They weren't eating off the land anymore. Right, right. Oh, isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. That and they, they had that and they had there were a lot of parasites down there. Right. So we were treating for several different things. But And I would do acupuncture for their arthritis. Some of them had arthritis and different kinds of pain. They'd never seen acupuncture, but they trusted us and let me use the needles on them. So it was, it was very profound. Acupuncture for all types of arthritis? Yes, actually. And osteo? Well. Mostly osteo, but it can decrease. It doesn't turn any, doesn't turn around rheumatoid, but it can help with the symptoms. It can help decrease the swelling and the pain, even in the rheumatoid arthritis. As well as the osteo. Yeah, it, we get good results with osteo. Wow, fascinating. Yeah, we can keep it from, we can help with the pain and, and kind of uh, curb it, you know, cut down on the inflammation that's underneath arthritis. Right. right. No, no, I could see that. I love, I love acupuncture. I go every month. Um, so if we were going to put all these countries together, I mean, you've learned so much. Um, if you can just give us a few insights into the wisdom of the people of these countries, uh, Australia, Bali, Ecuador, what can, well, what can we learn from the Western culture? What can we oh, learn? We can learn a lot. We can learn a lot. i tell you one thing, no matter where I went, they talked to me about the changing of the age that we were embarking on back in the 1990s and we're in it now. Right. Um, but they, they all um, talked about that and they've, felt positive about it, actually. They felt like um, it's a time of transformation. You have to have a death to have a rebirth. Right. And, in, you know, in some ways, I mean, they, some of them had been damaged by our materialistic, mind-oriented Western culture. And so some of them saw it as an opportunity for uh, us to develop more of a balance between the head and the heart. And they, like in, in Ecuador, they talked about the marriage of the eagle and the condor, that this is a time of the marriage of the eagle and the condor where the eagle is the sacred bird of the North America. You know, it's a has sharp vision, but it's an aggressive bird. And it's very intelligent and it can, you know, see long distances. And the condor is an environmentalist and they called it the bird of the heart. So they saw that as their sacred bird. And they saw this time as a mating, you know, as a marriage of the heart and the mind. That makes sense. Well, that's one of the challenges of our journeys. 
I think. Yes. Right? The balance of yes. the mind. It is. And, and they were very eager to learn from us, you know, to learn about the mind and learn from us because they were so heart oriented. Right. Okay. And yet, and so they, they loved having Americans come down there. Mm-hmm. Because they felt like it was that time of interaction and that we were living the prophecy by interacting. Right. And then, um, and then I know that I was influenced by their heart. Mm-hmm. I have no doubt it changed right. my life. And I'm just curious, uh, unfortunately, we only have a couple of minutes. Do any of them ever talk about um, the world itself and any prophecies? Uh the world itself no they did not they didn't they didn't talk about like the end of the world or anything like that uh they just saw it as a i think that they i don't know I, i'm guessing right they saw mother earth as surviving no matter whether it's with or without us got it yeah that makes sense yeah well that's their bond mother earth yes that's their partner in life Right. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yes. And they, they, you know, they see God in everything, including nature. That makes sense. Sure. Well, I think also maybe the, the elders of the Native American culture um, also um, feel, I think they're part of all this. They are. They are. And, you know, the South Americans knew that, too. Right. Yes. Because like the shamans in the Andes that we went to, right. they had a picture a painting of the Native Americans right behind their altar. And they had oh. exchanged, yes, they had exchanged, um, you know, pictures with each other because they felt such a bond and such a link. Wow, fascinating. I mean, what you've learned is um, really, really very admirable. We thank you so much for the wisdom that you've shared to us. Really beautiful. Oh, I think- I feel so grateful that they were, you know, that they shared that and they, they, they love to share and they wanted us to know, you know, yeah, they come from a pure heart. Yes, absolutely. And the good of the whole. Right. Mind that was the critical, they're not going to share, you know, but if they come from a pure heart, like a childish energy, you know, it's just giving for the sake of giving. Absolutely. That absolutely, you know, hit the nail on the head. (laughs) I think Cahil Gibran has a quote about that in the prophet, love has no love is no other desire than to fulfill itself. You know, mm-hmm. it's just mm-hmm. pure within itself. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Bonnie McLean. Thank you so very much. Thank really, you, Carol. Really beautiful. Thank you. And you've been listening to the matter of the heart. I've been your host, Carol, and we always appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. Mwah. Thank you.